How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses, so I better make this one count. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus review of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If Ferris thinks that he can just coast through this, he is sorely mistaken. Hosted by Justin. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Marjorie. She got a speeding ticket, another speeding ticket, and I lost the Vermont deal because of her. I think we should shoot her. And if you say Arnie Carvalho, you lose a testicle. How you know him? What are we gonna do? The question isn't what are we going to do, the question is what aren't we going to do. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole! Listener discretion is advised. This is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go with, I'll go. Today, we're discussing anyone, anyone, Bueller, Bueller, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, starring Matthew Broderick, Sarah, Sarah, Mia Sarah, Ruck, Ruck, Alan Ruck, directed by anyone, anyone, Hughes, John Hughes. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. This is Marjorie. And I'm Abe Froman. <laughs> okay, fine, you got me. This is Justin. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We are here to fill your plate with bonus podcasts. A while back, the three of us reviewed the Ferris Bueller soundtrack, the first time it had ever gotten an official soundtrack release from La La Land Records. Now we're here to review the movie, both as a thank you because we are so thankful for you, our listeners who listen to us week after week. And also, as a bit of a reminder of our other bonus shows, tomorrow we are releasing Trick or Treat. It's the seventh of our Horror of 1986 Gold Leveled bonus series. We've got up to 16 bonus podcasts for donors who help keep this show going. We really need your help. Tomorrow's Black Friday. If you're out spending money, think about spending some to support independent podcasts, to support now playing podcasts, so we can keep bringing you the shows we do week after week after week. And we thank you back with up to those 16 bonus shows. There's only about a month left in the donation drive, so we'd really appreciate any listeners who haven't donated yet to really help us reach our goal. And it enables us to, yes, do bonus shows like this review of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Another 1986 classic. We've been doing so many 1986 films. Felt like we should definitely get this one in. I actually saw this in theaters opening weekend. I happened to be visiting my sister in Virginia. My mother had driven us there. It was a long drive. And I think my mom wanted... A long cigarette break, so my sister let me pick any movie I wanted to see, and I chose this. 
I have no memory of seeing this movie in the theater. I'm pretty sure I did. But it feels like this movie has just always been part of culture. I, I can't pinpoint the first time I saw it. I'm not sure if it was opening week, but I know I saw it in theaters because I distinctly remember my cousin and I, who are roughly the same age, kind of conning my grandpa into taking us to see this movie. Did you have to pull a Ferris-like scam to go to the theater? (laughs) I just remember kind of like skewing what the movie was about to get him to take us because, let's face it, this movie wasn't aimed at, you know, folks in their 60s at the time. This was aimed at, you know, teenagers and whatnot, but after all was said and done, I remember him enjoying it as well, so... All ended well. Well, this is our first review of a film by John Hughes on Now Playing. And I don't think I really knew who he was when I went in to see this movie. I was looking at his films before. I think I'd probably seen Mr. Mom. I know I'd seen Vacation, but I wasn't paying attention to who wrote the films. And I was not associating this with movies I knew about but hadn't seen, like Weird Science and Breakfast Club. I mean, even in retrospect, this feels of the same director as Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, you know, 16 Candles. Those all kind of feel the same as they're based around high school. Vacation is always kind of the odd man out to me on this one as far as John Hughes getting your arms around his catalog, you know. But I was too young to know who directed movies or pay attention to that. But I could tell I had seen all those other movies a ton of times on VHS going into this. And if I would have known it was the same guy, it probably would have made me more excited. Yeah, I don't think I was aware of John Hughes as a director and movie maker as a kid. I knew that this movie was funny and my mom would take us to comedies a lot. So I'm sure that she was the reason I saw this. And the way I view Hughes movies, and maybe I'm a little different because I'm the female here, is I kind of view Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, and Breakfast Club kind of like one set of movies, and then he has the others. Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles could be sequels, kind of, in a way. I, I really love Pretty in Pink. I mean, if I had to rank them, it'd be Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club, and 16 Candles there. But I kind of feel that, like, while they're all touching on the high school age, so to speak, this one kind of stands out a little bit because it really wasn't in the high school. I'd agree that I think of him as a different kind of filmmaker. When I really reconciled that the director of The Breakfast Club, a pretty serious, it has its funny moments, but really down-to-earth, overwrought, melodramatic film, I like it, but it is what it is. That that same person wrote and directed Weird Science was an epiphany for me because I feel that is so unreal. And while they both have Anthony Michael Hall and deal with some teen insecurities, it felt very different. But you guys both mentioned Pretty in Pink. And here's something I didn't realize until very recently. Or again, if I realized it, I didn't assimilate this information. He didn't direct that. He only wrote Pretty in Pink. It came out the same year as Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was busy directing this, while Howard Deutsch, who married Leah Thompson, directed Pretty in Pink. Interesting. I mean, when I think of Hughes movies, I think 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, Home Alone. Wait, you think she's having a baby? I didn't even know it was a huge movie. I never even would have considered this in the same conversation. (laughs) No, but of those, 
some kind of wonderful, pretty in pink, and Home Alone, he didn't direct any of those. He just wrote them. I mean, he's the writer of a number of films, even in the 21st century. The only film he directed after Uncle Buck was Curly Sue, that miserable thing. But he wrote Baby's Day Out. He wrote the remake of Flubber. He wrote Drillbit Taylor. So... Wow, there was a peak and a valley to, <laughs> to the John Hughes career that I was unaware of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I was aware of his work up to Home Alone, and then after that he kind of fell off my radar for a good number of years. And then, you know, I mean, I, I've always thought of his classics, his 80s teen-based classics as the John Hughes films. I don't even know if he's somewhat responsible for creating the Brat Pack, but he's definitely responsible for lifting them up into the higher atmosphere of stardom, I guess, at the time. The Breakfast Club certainly helped with that and keeping the same crew in a number of films. The other thing, and I didn't realize this till I was at least in my 20s, he had absolutely no part in St. Elmo's Fire, which I always thought was a sequel to The Breakfast Club. No, no <laughs> one's going to own that movie. <laughs> oh, that movie's not bad, but it does feel Hughes-esque. Oh, come on. Joel Schumacher will own that. Director of The Lost Boys... Director of Batman and Robin. Yeah, he'll own that. <laughs> yeah, I guess by comparison, if you create bat nipples, looking back on your career, St. Elmo's Fire is a super high point for you. <laughs> but what a lot of people don't know about John Hughes is he was not maybe a rock star, but so much as a pop star. Like, he always had crazy hairdos. He was super nice and he was super personable, but he was also very kept to himself. And a lot of people think that he was a genius. Everybody who worked with him seemed to love him. I've never heard stories of people being like, oh, that guy's just an egomaniac and a jerk. Yeah, I would agree with that. He was somewhat reclusive, at least from the public. But yet, as we mentioned on the bonus episode we did about the soundtrack, he personally kept a list of people who wrote him mail and sent them all vinyl records when this movie was coming out. So... He definitely had an appreciation there. He had a background in sales. He was a salesman before he was a director. And I wonder if just some of that personability came across, you know, and the salesman-like attitude. It created very commercial films. Some of the lore about this movie that I've heard about over the years is that he basically wrote this movie in a, they say, somewhere between 10 days and a month. But it's hard to pin it down, but they're saying that he wrote it pretty darn quickly just to get it ready to film in time to have it out there before an impending writer's strike that was coming at the time. Yeah, it's kind of weird, though. When you're the director and the writer, you're allowed to still direct the film, but you can't write the film if you're part of the Writers Guild. But you're allowed to make minor changes. Very weird. But yes, he did write this in a very short time. And... I did listen to the commentary. It's kind of hard to find, but I picked up Ferris Bueller when it came out on its very first DVD release. That's the only time his commentary was released on future DVDs on Blu-rays. They've omitted that for some reason. And he talked on it about how a lot of this was done in the editing room or a lot of this was put together on the set. Certain things just were ad-libbed or come up with out of dialogue with the actor. Jeffrey Jones said that in the script, Rooney was just a really small part, and in talking with Hughes, he was able to really beef that up. Now, I remember very succinctly, after I saw this movie, I went back home, I immediately picked up the novelization to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
I'm not laughing at the idea of also owning the movie novelization of a movie. It's this particular movie, because when you boil it down, there's not a whole lot of plot. It's a lot of things happening to a group of people. I shockingly remember that book very well, lo these 30 years later. I remember specific passages from the book, such as Ferris discussing going to Cameron's parents' house, and they had all the screws in their cabinets turned exactly vertically. And sometimes he'd go over there with a screwdriver and just turn a couple and then go back and somehow they'd become straight again. (laughs) That's a great little bit of trivia to just drive home the point of how OCD these people were. There were subplots in this, and it was all based on the original script and the assembly edit of this. You know, when they just take everything they filmed and put it end to end was almost three hours long. Of course, that was never intended to be released. It's from there that they make a film. But there were other characters intended to be in here. Ferris was supposed to have two very young siblings. You'll notice there's like a crayon drawing on the refrigerator. And that was because he was supposed to have two young children in the house. Jeannie was a middle child. Oh, yeah. On his dad's desk at work, you can see his dad with a couple of younger kids in a picture. Mm -hmm. They were cut out of it. Charlie Sheen's character had a bigger part to play in a way he all off screen but he became more focal in ways i'll discuss but i learned a lot about what this film could have been by reading that book and i remember it still sounds like a lot like with star wars the more you find out about it the more you're glad that somebody edited it properly (laughs) because a lot of these things are like whoa that was a bad idea But that could also just be because we've seen these movies so many times and love them the way they are. I will say this story did not work as a book. (laughs) I remember reading it and being like, yep, I'll wait for VHS. (laughs) Well, I think it works as a movie. But like I said, I'm not sure how much story there is there. But were you able to cobble together a plot? Well, we're going to talk about the specifics. But very high level, Matthew Broderick plays Ferris Bueller, a high school senior in the spring semester before graduation. And he has decided that he needs one epic day with his best friend Cameron, played by Alan Ruck, and his junior girlfriend Sloan, played by Mia Sara. Ferris feigns illness so that his parents allow him to stay home, and then proceeds with a fairly complex plot that involves Cameron pretending to be Sloan Peterson's father, and faking a dead grandmother for Sloan so the three of them could spend the day in Chicago, going to an art museum, going to the top of the Sears Tower, and attending a Cubs game. And to top it off, he takes Cameron's father's Ferrari 1961 250 GT as their ride for the day. The one he doesn't drive, he doesn't touch, he doesn't breathe on it, he just rubs it with a diaper overcoming Cameron's protest by promising they'll drive it home backwards to take the mileage back off. But out to stop Ferris are two antagonists. First is Dean of Students Edward Rooney, played by Jeffrey Jones, a man who should never be near a school. (laughs) I don't think he's legally allowed to be near schools anymore. (laughs) Despite the computer record saying different thanks to Ferris's hacking, Rooney knows Ferris has missed nine days that semester and is out to bust the youth for good to hold him back one more year and finally get his comeuppance for all of his shirking of the rules. 
Also out to stop Ferris is his jealous younger sister, Jeannie, played by Jennifer Grey. Jeannie ends up skipping school just to go out and bust her brother. But when she gets home, she finds Edward Rooney in the house and believes him to be an intruder. She calls the police, and when they get there, Rooney's nowhere to be found, and they arrest Jeannie for making a false report. Meanwhile, Ferris and the group had dropped off the Ferrari at a parking garage where the two attendants took it out joyriding, and when they get it back, it has over double the miles Cameron's father expected. Cameron goes catatonic with the news, freaking out about what would happen, but he finally comes out of it and decided he's going to make a stand against his father and take the heat for the miles. In an emotional outburst, he even dents the car and is prepared for that, when he accidentally knocks it off the jack while they were trying to run the mileage backwards and it flies out of his father's window, crashing into the ravine below. But Cameron, for the first time, is going to stand up for himself as Ferris Bueller races home, beating the clock and Jeannie to get there, but only to be stopped by Ed Rooney. Jeannie, however, had an encounter with an unnamed drug addict played by Charlie Sheen. I think that's how he goes by today, is the unnamed <laughs> drug addict played by Charlie Sheen. <laughs> and that gives her a change of heart, so she covers for Ferris in front of Rooney, sending him home without his capture, and Ferris returns to bed, his parents none the wiser, as credits roll to Ed Rooney, forced to ride a school bus, and Ferris saying, go home. Yeah, he totally ripped off Deadpool. <laughs> No, actually seeing that again for the first time in years made me really appreciate how accurate they were with the Deadpool sting that they put together there as a joke. So when the movie opens, we're introduced to Ferris. He's lying in bed, his parents standing over him. We get the wonderful up angle shot of the parents, like up the nostril shot, the point of view from being in the bed. I'll admit, I have long had a problem with how Ferris plays this. The infantileness, he acts like an eight-year-old, and I'm like, is this how he always acts around his parents? Like, oh, where he's, like, making the funny faces? Yeah, and nanny-nanny, and, like, biting at the fingers. I'm like, wow, that is not how any high schooler should act. If the parents see a high school senior acting that way, perhaps he needs emotional help. <laughs> I got the impression that he was like their pride and joy since he was the oldest and the firstborn and that maybe he was coddled a little bit, which is why he could get away with some of the stuff, but he did go to great lengths to be sick. So I'm not quite sure how much he was coddled, but no, I completely understand. But I thought it was just something silly that it, cause he was like, I don't know, special cause he's a boy or something. It does read a little weird, but I feel like very few people, very few actors could pull it off. Like... Matthew Broderick did. You know, there was rumors of other people playing. Like, could you imagine Eric Stoltz trying to act like that? It just would come <laughs> off creepy. <laughs> Eric Stoltz, always a bridesmaid, right? Back to the Future, <laughs> Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah, but this is something that, you know, Matthew Broderick as an actor can pull off. Because he's, I don't want to say he's a handsome guy, but he is. He's, he's somewhat handsome, but he is more on the cute side. He's a cute guy. So that kind of just kind of plays towards his personality anyways. But I think you're kind of right, Arnie. He's This is his relationship with his parents. It's not a serious relationship. He acts the way he thinks they want him to act when they're around, which allows him to do everything he wants to do. I have taken this as he was acting this way because he was playing sick. But by the same token, we never see him 
in a normal scene with his parents. The only scenes we see, he's always laying in bed while his parents are there. And so I think having just a single scene, beginning and something, that would show him speaking in a normal tone of voice would help normalize this whole thing for me. (laughs) But at the same time, if we think about it, these parents aren't here for any other reason than to be the overall MacGuffin that can bust his day off. You know, the principal's going to try, his sister's going to try, but that only means because if they do get him in trouble, he's going to have to deal with his parents. And so that's the only reason they're there, is so we have a name and a face to go with the people that we're supposed to, at the age that we're supposed to be watching this movie, be somewhat afraid of. They're the authority figure that you're supposed to fear. But we needed the parents to show up later, because I think every kid's greatest fear when skipping school is that you'll be somewhere you're, when your parents is. That's what I'm saying. This is the one person, like, it almost doesn't matter if he beats Rooney, it almost doesn't matter if he beats Jeannie, he has to beat his parents home but at the end of the day they're the ones who are gonna be able to ground him and make his life living hell which is funny for you know because matthew broderick seems like an adult in this movie and to think (laughs) that he's gonna be grounded is is a bit weird but as a 12 year old i'm buying it it's like yes you got to make sure you're home before mom and dad are there i think he plays a teenager very well i had seen him he'd only done a couple of movies by this point and war games and lady hawk were the two big ones i think i saw lady hawk After this, my sixth grade teacher was a huge Lady Hawk fan, and so that convinced me to go watch it. But I remembered him well from War Games, where he played the teenage hacker, and I thought I was still at the age where I expected actors to play the same character time and time again. And so being the mischievous teen who has good intentions but breaks the rules by either hacking government computers or skipping school, it really jibed with my impression of him. So you can really imagine my utter disappointment when I went to see Project X in theaters thinking it would be a third incarnation and it was about killing monkeys. Aww. My Matthew Broderick experience is basically, yes, I saw him in War Games, and then in Ferris Bueller, and that, I think that's what you're saying, Arnie, is that's not a huge leap in character from who he was in War Games to being this guy. I could see him becoming this guy in a two or three year span. And then, really, I didn't pay much attention to him until he was in Election, which ended up being, what, 10, 15 years later. I know, every time I see him, it's always... Up until recently, it's always been like, oh, hey, it's the guy from Ferris Bueller. You know, like for a while it was that. And I think tangentially being aware of him married to Sarah Jessica Parker also, because that was also something. Well, you mentioned election and that was in very late 90s. I mean, I'd see him time and again. He never became the superstar I expected him to be coming out of this. That wasn't what he was seeking. I mean, he came from Broadway before this, but cable guy addicted to love i have to say that i love the cable guy but he lost his cuteness that godzilla remake by roland emmerich let's never speak of that again if he was in something i would usually give it another look except for biloxi blues i just never saw that one Uh, that is one that i've seen (laughs) and that was actually the broadway play where he was working with alan rock yep they were neil simon brats apparently but a lot of neil simon broadway plays But I think he does really well here. I mean, when you're playing war games, yes, it's a sci-fi film, but you're not having to do a whole lot of stretching. And Lady Hawk, he was not the star. Here, right away, he has to go for about 
five minutes to ten minutes at the start of this film doing a one-man show breaking the fourth wall. And I don't think at this point I had ever had a live-action character talking to me from the screen. A Muppet, sure, but I couldn't recall being in a movie theater and having that character talk to me. Oh, no, and I think remembering the commercials for this movie, that's what made me want to see this. That seemed like something new and fun and awesome, and I had to be a part of it. Or at least it was something new for us, and I feel like nowadays, it's just everywhere. I mean, you turn on Disney Channel, and every character is talking directly to the screen. It's just not a specialty or something new anymore, which I think made it extra fun for me. I mean, it kind of gave this movie an extra spark. Can you imagine this movie without any commentary from Ferris, just watching this in linear fashion? <laughs> It'd be a completely different movie. Well... It gives Hughes a very easy way to tell the audience what a character is thinking. Usually, you have to portray that in dialogue with other characters or really rely on the actor to emote and give facial expressions that makes very clear their intention. He gets to just say it right out, and I'll be honest, I was a kid who did not like going to school. I every day dreaded going to school. I had a thermometer right by where I ate my cereal every morning, praying for a fever. I was, Aww. I guess, like Cameron, hoping I'd have a reason to not go to school. So when he's giving an instructional on how to get out of going to school and fake being sick, I took instructions like that. And even in the book, he talked about holding a thermometer to a light bulb to make it look like a fever, but not to do that because I, I ended up trying that and my mother did not believe I had a temperature of 110. Did, did you try the licking your palms though? You know, I always thought again, that was a little bit like him trying to bite mom's finger in this. I didn't see how that would help. Hmm. I don't remember my mom ever checking my palms to see if I was sick. She would check my forehead and then if that was warm, then maybe the thermometer came out. But she never checked my palms. I just figured I never had the right disease. <laughs> that there's some horrifying disease you would get with cold, sweaty palms. No, but you're right. He does something in a little trick in this movie that they only do once. They never call it back, which is he's talking directly to the camera, which he has done already. But then they pop up the instructions with words on the screen. And they never go back to that. It's just that one time. Well, Hughes actually talked about that in the commentary. He watched this and just thought the scenes were too static. And we do see, and this is something... It took me a couple watchings to pick up on, but Hughes is so clever. He's rigging up all the traps for that day. He's putting together the pulleys that are going to fake the mannequin in his bed, and you see the outfits he's going to wear behind him and things. But Hughes thought the whole thing just wasn't very exciting visually, and so very late in production, they added the text. Huh. Keep in mind, they never do that again. He also never monologues this much again. He'll have an aside here and there, but this is really his opening lecture, so to speak. But it was a good introduction to his shenanigans, you know, how Ferris works. I was immediately taken to him. I always wanted to be the cool kid up on the screen. I instantly wanted to be this guy. I really wanted that charisma that quick wit. I wasn't getting all of his references. I was way too young when I first saw this to know who the walrus was. Or what fastest socialists were. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. there, there were definitely some lines that were way over my head at 12. But you're right. I'm right there with you, Arnie. Like, I was automatically drawn into 
Ferris Bueller as a character. I wanted to be him. And actually, I think this is the first time I realized as a kid, there was a difference between being a smartass and a clever smartass. You know, you could be a fun guy and, you know, have fun and do what you want to do, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. (laughs) You know, but I mean, at 12, that's where you start to kind of figure that stuff out. Like, there's always kids that are like, you know, give you noogies or, yeah, wet willies. I mean, that's, that's just being a jerk. But what Ferris taught us at this age is, hey, guess what? You can be a smart ass, but you can also be charming at the same time. I think Ferris was like what everyone thought they were trying to do, but never quite executed. I mean, it just, he he oozed cool. And like Edie McClurg said, you know, he he's popular with everybody. He wasn't popular with my sister when I saw this in theaters. My sister, I should add, is 12 years older than me. So she was mid-twenties going in and seeing this. And she came out of that movie and said just immediately to me, he was a sociopath. He was a (laughs) habitual liar. He was constantly getting what he wanted by doing amoral things. And this has become a debate that has popped up on the internet quite a bit. I found out when I started researching this, people agree with my sister. Some people think... This is a horribly toxic personality that you shouldn't want around. I would say, out of all the things he does, the only almost unforgivable thing is taking the car. Beyond that, it's all just kind of in good fun. Okay, but I have taken the car when I'm not supposed to. I mean, surely you have, Justin, Arnie? Oh, yeah. I've I've pulled that trick myself. But I guess what I'm saying is this was somebody's prized possession. It was a expensive, irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind type of car, which is different than hopping in, you know, your mom's 78 Nova. True. And rolling it down, the, you uh, know. Gran Torino, please. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I mean, outside of that, that was his one big thing that I, I just feel like if this was a realistic movie, it wouldn't have ended with just Cameron saying you'd take the heat. There would be some lawyers involved. there'd be definitely phone calls between the parents outside of that i mean think about what does he do that's so sociopathic well he gets pretty angry and indignant to a maitre d at a restaurant he gets on a parade float he impersonated abe froman yeah abe froman showed up i'm guessing and where was his table (laughs) well sausage king is just gonna have to wait for a table to open up Sure, okay, you can say that there's a victim to that prank. But really, I mean, is it a victim of a guy who's going to have to wait a little bit longer to eat his hoity-toity lunch? Now, they did cut a little bit out of this opening, which I remember from the book. I didn't know it was actually scripted and filmed, where Ferris calls his dad at work and tricks him into telling him where the savings bonds his grandmother had put in his name for college were. And that's how Ferris pays for the day is by cashing in one of his grandmother's savings bonds. It was in his name, but apparently when screened, it made him look like a bit of a thief. Yes, I I have heard that before, because I think that not only was in the book, that was in an early cut of the script. And that's probably what you said the book came from. But yeah, that's I think that's a good cut because that does paint him as underhanded and not necessarily something cool to do. That's that would have made me think Ferris is kind of a slime ball. I think he rides that line, honestly. I think, though, he never harms anyone. I think that's what you're pointing out by saying Abe Froman has to wait, is everything he does, it seems to be victimless. And so that makes it a little bit more good-natured. Right. Well, but then did the character of Ferris grow up and then end up being draws from PCU where people come to him for the term papers and anytime they need help when they're in college? 
Well, keep in mind, how many of the people in the school think of Ferris Bueller as having helped them out? Exactly. See my point, though? You get the same character, but in college. Ferris calls the school. There's the kid like, I can't stand summer school. (laughs) Ferris was going to get him out of summer school. So Ferris is hooking people up. And that had a funny scene because, again, 11 years old. I'd never heard of the movie Alien, but I'd seen the trailer for Aliens like a dozen or two times in theaters that year. And so when he's like talking about Alien, 11-year-old me is like, God, what a marketing tie-in promoting their other movie that's out this summer. (laughs) (laughs) Different studio, and they were referencing a 70s flick that I hadn't heard of, but... (laughs) I think it should be pointed out, though, that while Ferris is doing all this stuff and he's, like you said, his character is a little bit questionable. He's always pushing the line. They do make a point of showing that he's a fairly good student. Like, you can see his grades on the screen and he's getting mostly A's there. But we see his grades when he hacks the computer to change his number of absences. So are those really his grades? I mean, we saw in War Games he hacked the computer to up the grades of... Ali Sheedy. I would take it at face value here that he's actually a good student because it just paints this character as a clever operator who knows how to manipulate authority and still be able to act the way he wants to act when they're not around. I find it very interesting that the one time we see his father at work, his father is in sales. Again, Hughes came from copywriting. I wonder if it's like the salesman kind of attitude that's getting Ferris by. Being able to schmooze, for lack of a better term. But almost every single interaction with his father, his father seems addled. (laughs) (laughs) I would say clueless versus addled, but... I always got the impression the dad was like, had a coke problem or something. (laughs) Oh, wow. He just seems out of it, doesn't he? (laughs) I just have to go back to the way I viewed this as a kid and... It just always reminded me of friends' parents that I had that, you know... Did coke? No, no, maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe I need to go back and revisit that. But no, I mean, sometimes you'd go to a friend's house and either the mom or dad were ever present. They would, you know, they'd be checking on you if you're playing in the backyard, if you're playing downstairs. You always knew mom or somebody was around. But then there's other friends where you went over there and, you know, you were lucky if you saw either one of their parents at all. So I just kind of felt like they were those type of parents. They do what they have to do to get the kids out the door, and then they're more concerned about their careers. You know, mom is a real estate agent, and dad is in sales, and he works downtown. They've got careers that they're worried about. These kids are just kind of a bump on their road of of life. And maybe coke ads. (laughs) See? (laughs) Yeah, I just took him as a bit out of it. Let's face it. Adults are not given the best portrayal in this film. As compared to Pretty in Pink where the father was kind of a more well-rounded character that had his own struggles. Here, I mean, it's shown in the classroom scenes, right? With Ben Stein there giving that economics lecture, and every adult is pretty much a clueless buffoon going through this. Yeah, I can agree with that. Like, I can't think of any adult that has any idea of what's going on. The guy who comes closest to understanding that something's not right is, like you said, the major D at that restaurant. (laughs) But then he even gets played, you know, so. Yeah, and those inserts at school, I could so see those being cut, but they really resonated with me. The way the lecture just drones on and nobody's participating, nobody's listening. 
Ben Stein. I mean, he went on to be somebody. I used to watch Win Ben Stein's Money. He went on to be Ben Stein. (laughs) Exactly. He's famous for being famous now. Yeah. But keep in mind, he was Ben Stein before this. And I'm not just talking about his birth name. He was a speechwriter for President Nixon. Oh, yeah. And this economics lecture was ad-libbed by him because he knows that much about economics. To this day, Ben Stein in this movie has taught me the most I know about voodoo economics. (laughs) (laughs) Something OO economics. You're right, no, he's he's a great character in this movie. I mean, his voice is just perfect for a high school lecturer. I mean, I could sleep to that all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right, just, you know, panning over these kids' faces, one kid's sleeping and he's drooling. There's one girl that I always thought kind of looked like Natalie from Facts of Life, who's just kind of got an eye twitch going <laughs> on, like trying to figure out what he's talking about. They did a really good job filling that classroom. Real students. Filmed at a real school, same school where they did The Breakfast Club. Those were mostly just students from that school, including the one who calls Jeannie a heartless wench. None of those were actors. Wow. Okay, but there are some of those kids that went on to be actors. Like, I recognize some of them from TV. Like, I think it was even Amazing Stories. There was one that there was an amazing story with Christopher Lloyd and Mary Stuart Matheson and one of the redhead kids from this classroom scene. And they do a spell because Christopher Lloyd is their teacher and they don't like him. They do a spell and he ends up losing his head. I remember that episode. Yeah, you remember that? I watched that a whole bunch as we taped it. And it was it was scary and creepy and bad effects. And Christopher Lloyd comes after him with his head under his arm. And But yeah, like one of those kids I recognize, I swear, was in that episode and in Ferris Bueller. Well, not 100% of them were regular students. I mean, Christy Swanson was the, he's sick. My friend saw this friend who saw Ferris pass out of 31 Flavors last night. That was the shorter, abbreviated version of it. (laughs) (laughs) But that is very classical part of the movie. Now, that wasn't even supposed to be her original role. She was supposed to be the girl on the telephone talking to Ferris about if if he was going to be all right for the weekend. But they already filmed that, and they had to come back, and Hughes felt bad for filming that because... She was meant to be in a shot that they were going to film back in L.A., I think. Yeah, you're right with that, because all of this stuff in the school and at the house is filmed in L.A. The Ferris's house is in the L.A. area, the same area where they shot 16 Candles and all of that. Those same houses that look fairly Midwestern. And then... The rest of it was shot on location in Chicago. Hughes is from Chicago. He really wanted a chance to showcase his city. So they did a lot of location shooting. But yeah, this stuff, California. That's how they were able to remove the young children. They were supposed to be in the beginning and end of the film. That was all shot last in California after they'd done the bulk of the movie. And so they were able to realize even by that point, okay, we're just not even going to film those kids. (laughs) I have to say, this time around, watching it is the first time that I've ever like started to pick out some of those different filming locations. Because, like, you can see palm fronds in the background <laughs> in some of these neighborhoods, and I was like, "Wait a minute, there's no palm trees in Chicago." You could also see <laughs> leaves turning brown because this was filmed in the autumn of '85, not the summer of '86. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, speaking of Chicago, Arnie, I think it was you who brought it up in 
the Ghostbusters review of how New York is a character in that movie. And I think very much the same thing here. This was my introduction, obviously, to most things Chicago. I mean, this plays like a tourism video for a good amount of it. I think I take Chicago for granted because it's in my home state. I would agree with that. I had gone to Chicago multiple times per year, every year of my life. So them being in Chicago didn't mean a whole lot to me. Although I was getting of that age where I'd start to be enthused when I saw Illinois license plates, like feeling Illinois was part of the movie making business. This was around the time I started writing my first script. So I liked things set in Illinois, but I'd been to that museum. I knew where Wrigley Field was, even if I'd never gone in it. The Sears Tower, which Mm -hmm. I refuse to call it by its new name. Those are things, if you live here, you've done numerous times. So it's not like, and I always, I guess I always thought that it's not that Ferris was doing these at the first time. I thought this is what you do when you live in Illinois. Well, I guess for the the 93% of the rest of us who aren't in the greater Chicago, Illinois area, (laughs) this was, this kind of played as, you know. Oh, Chicago looks like a cool city, you know, because as a kid, movies are always either in L.A., New York, or outer space. You know, Chicago didn't get a lot of play until, you know, movies like this. I mean, I suppose Blues Brothers is kind of a big Chicago type of movie. Yeah, there was actually a paper that came out online recently where they discussed how Ferris Bueller may have forecast or contributed to the gentrification of the Chicago area and Blues Brothers showed it as the culturally diverse area it is whereas Ferris Bueller shows it as being ruled by rich white kids. Waspies. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty whitewashed in Ferris Bueller. I can't think of any people of color in the movie except for maybe the guy who goes on the joyride yeah. in the Ferrari. Both of them may have some sort of ethnicity going on. Um, yeah. But... <laughs> Well, and I think that growing up in Chicago, if you lived in the Burbs as a kid, you weren't allowed to go into the city without your parents. It's a little dicey at times in certain things, and now it's really dicey. But yeah, it's not like, you know, you could just go downtown like you can, Justin, because I'm sure that your downtown is pretty close and pretty decent. But some parts of Chicago, even like the closer Western Burbs, you're talking about an hour each way to get into the city. Oh, yeah, it's a trek. You know, I have family that live, you know, in the outskirts of Chicago. And you don't say you're going to Chicago when you go to visit them because you're still a good 45 minutes an hour outside of Chicago. But no, I mean, I, I really dug this because this is about the same time that, you know, cable TV is starting to make its way into every home and WGN is a big channel. On basic cable, Bozo, midday news, and then a Cubs game in the afternoon. That was pretty much the programming. But yeah, one of those waspy people is, of course, the Ruck family. We never get to see Cameron's parents. I think we learn all we need to know about them from Cameron himself. Yeah, there's really no point in personifying his parents. Just the idea of them is scary enough. I mean, just even the house they picked out to help flesh out these people we'll never see is perfect. I mean, have how many times have you ever seen a house that looks like that? Have you ever driven up to somebody's house and it's like, oh, wait, they've got a fully glass garage with cars on display? Well, they obviously were exceptionally rich. I looked up that car, the 250 GT California Spider. The most recent one sold for $18.5 million. Whoa. <laughs> the average sale price, though, is a little lower. Only $11 million. Oh, why don't we get three of them? <laughs> <laughs> why 
Well, they did in the movie. Well, actually, they got none of them. No, they had one. They actually had one. For all those close-up shots, that is a real 1961 GT Spider. All the rest, yeah, they dummied up cars to look exactly like the spider. Oh, wow. He apparently got hate mail because people thought he really sent one of the few spiders in the world out a window. <laughs> Welcome to movie making, folks. <laughs> yeah, this was back around the time when people also would go to Pontiac dealers asking to buy kit. <laughs> yes, I don't feel like not having a face for Cameron's parents does anything to hurt that character we understand how he deals with his parents and we understand that it's not great so no need to cast anybody there i i really can't see how it would have added anything but alan ruck i always thought he seemed age appropriate having no idea he was almost 30 at the filming of this <laughs> i think at the time i didn't question it like older kids were older kids whatever but Rewatching it again as like a teenager further on, you start to realize, wait, these guys are all a little bit old to be playing teens, with maybe the exception of Sloan, but both of them felt a little old. But what shocked me was the next time I remember seeing Alan Ruck, he showed up on a sitcom somewhere and he was fully gray. Like he went from being 18, 19, 20 to being 47. Spin City. Spin City, yes, thank you. With Michael J. Fox and Barry Bostwick. I watched that show just because it was the first time I knew I could see Cameron in something else. And I was like, what? <laughs> see, it wasn't until that show came on that I'm like, oh, wait, that's the guy from Ferris. And I had no idea he was so old. He had done an absolute ton of stuff. And I'd seen it and I never recognized him. Young Guns 2, Three Fugitives, Star Trek Generations. But it wasn't until... Spin City that I paid attention to where he was. That was a big shocker to me. I just remember being like, whoa, Cameron has gone gray. But even watching it this time around, you could start to see there's a few gray hairs hiding in that black mane of his. That's just stress from his parents. <laughs> now, I mentioned the Ferris is a sociopath theory. There's another thing that if you read the novelization, it's kind of borne out that this whole day was for Cameron. And you mentioned the unforgivable thing is taking the car out. But there's that scene late in the movie where Sloane says to Ferris, you knew what you were doing when you woke up this morning. And that this whole day was intended to allow Cameron to come out of his shell and become a man because it goes back to that speech. If he doesn't, he'll marry the first woman he lays. This was kind of borne out in the script and in the novelization because Ferris talks about a friend he had as a kid named Garth Volbeck and he ended up in a they were friends like in eighth grade and Garth had a troubled family and Ferris tried to help him and Garth dropped out of high school and Ferris didn't do enough and so Ferris was trying again to help another friend to see if he could help Cameron the way he didn't help Garth Spoiler alert, Garth was played by Charlie Sheen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yet another piece of that script that I'm glad they didn't flesh out because that's, I kind of like the, the ambivalence of not knowing why everybody knows who this Ferris guy is. And it's just even better that some scurvy dude on a couch at a police station even knows who he is. It's, it's almost better left ambiguous. 
than having them have been friends. But if you look at that, it makes Cameron the main character. This is Ferris Bueller's day off. But if you look at Ferris Bueller, he's a static character. There's no arc there. What he is, is an unending force of nature that affects the people around him. Genie has an arc. Cameron has an arc. Even Ed Rooney has an arc. Sloan, we need to discuss. But <laughs> I think he changes those around him and that it all started here with Cameron. Oh, yeah. I don't know that that's so much a theory is that's just a, a very adult reading of a movie that we've all known for so many years. I think it's very obvious once you watch it again that this whole thing is for Cameron. Ferris, like you said, is a guy who has it all figured out. I mean, he's not worried about college. He's not worried about where his life's going to be in 10 years. He's got this all mapped out and figured out. And even if bumps come up along the way, he knows how to handle himself. So this day was designed from the beginning to help his buddy Cameron. I mean, Ferris does coerce Cameron a lot of the ways. There's the phone calls at the beginning. There's the getting him to make that phone call to Ed Rooney. There's the car. It does feel like Cameron is taken advantage of in these early scenes. Yes, it can be seen that way for sure. But also, you know, as a kid, it just looked like we were using Cameron's positive points to get to where we're going. I think, you know, it's obvious that Cameron can do an adult character voice, which we've never seen Ferris do. Ferris never puts on a voice. You know, he's always just Ferris. Like, even when he's Abe Froman, he's not trying to put on any type of voice. But Cameron puts on a... <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> That's a good impression. <laughs> that Mr. Peterson voice is something to behold. And these two have great timing together. It comes from their work on the Broadway stage together, but... They come across as old friends, just in that instant scene where Ferris is jumping around the kitchen, giving Cameron hand gestures as to what to say to Rooney, all of that. Talk! You talk! <laughs> well, and on the flip side of that phone call, Arnie, is some awesome stuff going on, too. Rooney and Grace? Holy cow. The way they're flipping around the, the office, and she's trying to find papers, and switch on the phone and back and forth with each other. Yeah, Jeffrey Jones. I had seen him in Amadeus at this point, but I didn't really remember him. This same year, he would also play the Dark Overlord in Howard the Duck. So he got a one-two back-to-back in my life as villainy. But when I was 11, I looked at this and thought, yep, this is what school administrators did. They lived their job just like stockbrokers and hedge fund managers and actors, they are school administrators 24-7 who are going to do what it takes to get that truant. As an adult, I'm like, really? Wouldn't he just go home? He doesn't even seem to like kids all that much. You, you know, I try to think back to like all the bad situations I've had at work, and I don't think I'd go through that much work to do something or catch somebody. <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? F this. I'm done. Where's my beer? Yeah, he cares way too much about Ferris having this ninth day off. <laughs> and, and if he hates him so much, why does he want to hold him back to have to deal with him another year? Punishment. I mean, I do see a little bit of a comparative to the principal from The Breakfast Club. And in fact... Both take place in Shermer, Illinois, at Shermer High School. You could think that the principal from The Breakfast Club is this guy's boss. Oh, truly. Yep, both a little bit high on the little bit of power they have. 
But I always thought the principal in the breakfast club was ticked off because he was having to waste his Saturdays there. But it's also like Justin said, it's a power trip. It's an ego trip. It's they're fiefdom in here, right? And they have control over these people. And I imagine there's some jealousy over getting older while you see these young kids driving these nice cars. Right. And now that you pointed out that both those characters are very similar, I'm starting to wonder if John Hughes has an issue with principals and dean of students because he really kind of gives them, you know, as a kid growing watching this, you're thinking, I don't want to grow up to be those guys, right? Like, he kind of makes them losers to a degree. Not to a degree. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> well, Ed Rooney, definitely. But I guess the principal in, in Breakfast Club, it could be could be seen that he's, you know, got a nice job or whatnot. But he's... Not really. I think the janitor calls him out pretty hardcore, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> but he doesn't get trashed physically the same way that Jeffrey Jones does. But yeah, I guess, I wonder what Hughes was playing at there. He must have had some bad experiences with people in power in high school. But yeah, he's there with Edie McClurg as Grace, and they do have some great back and forth and one-liners together there. Honestly, I think Edie McClurg shined in this role. She's awesome anyway, but I think she totally outpaced Rooney. She was great. I swear to God, she reminded me so much of the lady in the office in my grade school. You know, that same poofy hair. <laughs> yep. Same Midwestern accent. Always just happy to see you. But you know, the minute you left the office, she said something nasty about you under your breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was a comedian, whereas Jeffrey Jones was an actor. So I do think she has better timing, better facial expressions and inflection and things. The She gets to make jokes Whereas Edward Rooney is the joke. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. And she gets to pull four pencils out of her hairdo, which is just one of the best sight gags on film in our (laughs) culture. Yeah, but every single person you saw with like a beehive or poofy hair back in the day, you know they had a pencil stuck up there. You could see it. (laughs) She's sniffing white out. Or green out or pink out, whatever it was. That, that always caught my eye. She had all these different colors of white out, and I wanted to know where you got those. It's also interesting that she is in touch with the school. When she, Rooney wants to know who Sloane Peterson is dating, when he wants to know what people think of Ferris, she has that just right off the cuff. He has no idea what's going on in his own school. To that point, she almost knows too much. Like, how many kids are in the school, and why does she know that Jeannie should be in home ec at a certain time? Like, geez, and Pete's, that's almost too much knowledge, but it works for this character. Yeah, and I got the impression Jeannie was always in the office bitching about something, because that seems her nature. Oh, yeah, because of the way they played it. I mean, very little was said, but I think that's the impression that was meant to be left, and they did a great job of conveying that information. Strangely, though, I remember high school, and there were always those few people who knew your schedule as well as you did. Like, either because you were friendly with them, there were a couple people in the office who were my go-tos with my sick notes when I got back from school, or when I needed a bus transfer or something like that, and they knew which classes I had. It was kind of weird. I worked in the library, and at the end of the school year, the librarian hugged me. It was really odd. So, it you know, there were those few. This didn't strike me as odd in any way. <laughs> but she also gets probably one of the greatest monologues <laughs> from the 80s. It lives on to this day. Doesn't it, Can anybody do that entire thing? 
The Sportos, the Motorheads, Geeks, Sluts, Bloods, Wastoids, Dweebs, Dickheads, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. <laughs> <laughs> so great. <laughs> That was the first time I heard a lot of those terms. Yeah, she's just a little character actor here, but she's definitely memorable from this. Grace's biggest part is really being in this entire plot to get Sloane out of school. This is, I think, Ferris's one point of bad planning is he knew Cameron would be homesick. He was able to play sick, but he didn't tell Sloane ahead of time, hey, play sick. So he has to kill her grandmother. <laughs> Dead grandmother. <laughs> Why don't you produce a body and roll her old bones on down here? <laughs> oh, but that, that made for just some great gags, though, didn't it? It did. We get the phony phone call. We get Ed not believing it. We get Ed turning and playing who he thinks is Ferris on the phone. Turns out Ferris calls him and now totally flip it on Ed Rooney. <laughs> and then even later, Sloan went home at some point and changed her answering machine to let them know where to reach them at the mortuary, which then goes to Cameron's house, which has a recording of a fake mortuary. So there was there was a lot of planning going on there for something like you said could have just as easily been taken care of if Sloan just would have played sick. And what if anybody else called Sloan's house that day? <laughs> right? And who leaves the number of the mortuary on their answering <laughs> machine message? <laughs> That's where we'll be if you need to get a hold of us. Mia Sara playing Sloan. I had not seen Legend at this point, and I wouldn't for another six years. I don't know if either of you did. This was my first introduction to her, and I was totally infatuated at 11. I thought she was so elegant and vaguely English. Yeah, she has some weird speech avocations, to say the least. You know, the way she says warmth. Mm-hmm. And compassion. There's something something a little off about that, and I'm not quite sure if she was trying to cover up a Canadian accent or, like you said, maybe slightly English. I thought it was the fake fancy American accent like Tina Turner now has, and Madonna has affected as well, because Madonna's from Detroit. Yeah, Mia Sarah's from Brooklyn. <laughs> I called it! <laughs> uh, yeah, she she had a little bit of a hoity-toitiness to her in, in some scenes. But you're right, she had an exotic look to her, and she was hot to a 12-year-old Justin. I hope you saw Time Cop. It no. was the fulfillment of many dreams. Ooh, I might have to do some YouTubing. <laughs> <laughs> but Sloan in this movie, I just, when I saw this at 11, Ferris has a girlfriend. Great for Ferris, and he's really into his girlfriend. He talks about marrying her. But watching it with the now-playing goggles on... Other than a jacket with a lot of fringe, what does she add to this movie? <laughs> well, this is kind of where I thought you were going last time you said there was another theory out there. But there's an internet theory that people think that Ferris doesn't actually exist, and he's just a figment of Cameron's imagination. And therefore, we need Sloane here, which I guess would make her Cameron's girlfriend, just to prove that what's going on isn't just all in Cameron's head. The things are actually happening, but there's a witness to them. That being Sloan. Yeah, I read that little theory and chuckled it off, but... Right. <laughs> I don't think that's what John Hughes was thinking right. when he said we need to have a girl in here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to blow the internet's mind. What's the internet? You'll find out in about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> How much 
pot did they smoke to come up with that? <laughs> I mean, come on. That's like the Garfield minus Garfield comics out there. Yes. <laughs> crazy Those are crazy. That's, that is funny. <laughs> Just makes jaundice all that much more weird. <laughs> to be honest with you, I think she is here to do two things. One, make Ferris cool by having a hot girlfriend. True. And two... To give them that thing to do where they actually interact at the school in person with Ed Rooney. And because, like, without all that stuff, that's 20 minutes of content getting her out of school. <laughs> so that's how it is in their family. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get that joke so much later. <laughs> I just think that if he's taking his girl who... Like he said, he's going to have to work a job over the summer, then he's going to college, and she's still going to be in high school. I feel there should be something there for her, instead of just, hey, come along and watch me improve Cameron's life by giving him some self-esteem. But it is high school. I mean, for the majority of people, girlfriends in high school aren't forever. They're just friends at the time, you know? So why not bring your girlfriend along? Marjorie, did having a woman in this movie help you to relate to it that's what i'm wondering if it added was not just becoming a boy's film at that point i'm sorry but girls in my high school did not look like sloan we all looked like genie genie could have fit in with my high school perfectly right down to the alice from dilbert haircut that she had <laughs> the mall bangs and- yep oh yeah i mean leg warmers oh yes i i probably had an outfit like genie's I'm not going to lie. I I don't think that it necessarily helped. It didn't hurt. But I don't feel that the average high school girl at the time, and I don't even know today, could identify with Sloan for anything. And you're right. Jennifer Grey, Jeannie Bueller, is a female presence in this film. So it wouldn't be just guys. But I guess this becomes a positive female influence versus an antagonistic one. Because, yes, Jennifer Grey who does not look like this at all anymore because she got a nose job and became so unrecognizably plain. Wow, you said it. I saw her on Friends years later, and I'm like, no, that's not the same girl. There was another sitcom after she was on Friends called It's Like You Know, where she played herself, but like a fictionalized version of herself. Like she was friends with fictional people and played it a certain way. And I was just stunned that that was her. And she even made nose job jokes about it. You know, she's married to Coulson from the Marvel films. Oh, wow. And her and Matthew Broderick actually dated after this movie. They were engaged. And Mia Sarah's on the set and he's dating Jennifer Grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad choice, Matthew. That he has, he definitely has a uh, type, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker's nose, Jennifer Grey's original nose. <laughs> Now, if I thought Rooney was a little overboard in his militant attack on Ferris, genies I get. I had sisters. I had a sister who was basically like a genie to me. She was an older sister, but who the fights were epic and I was the youngest, so she couldn't believe some of the shit I got away with. And so genie was a very, very real person to me. (laughs) For years, I assumed they were twins. I didn't realize she was a whole grade younger than him. I guess, actually, before I thought about it as a kid, I thought she was the older sibling. But then as I got older and realized, oh, no, Ferris is a senior. He's going to be graduating. I thought maybe they were twins. But it turns out, no, she's a whole year younger than him. 
I'm the oldest in my family. And to this day, I cannot understand why she was so upset about Ferris getting away with it. Because it's not fair when your brother gets away with shit that you got busted for. <laughs> Marjorie also has a brother. I have a little brother. He's four years younger than me. And I got in trouble for so much that he got away with. Because he was a boy and he played varsity soccer and... No, it's not fair. I completely understand where Jeannie's coming from because it's bullshit. And I still tell my brother to the, this to this day that, hey, remember the time you snuck out of the house and dad laughed about it and got you a beer? Yeah, I snuck out of the house and was grand for two months, asshole. <laughs> See, I really relate it to Charlie Sheen's message of, so it's actually you that you're mad at. Because <laughs> he's just doing what you want to do, but you're, you're going to get caught. That's not his fault. That's your fault. No. It's because my dad had totally two sets of rules, one for each kid. Well, don't get caught. That's a universal rule. Wait a second. My brother got caught. (laughs) He got caught and congratulated and got a beer. Okay, I guess what we've discovered is that Jeannie's character is somewhat realistic then. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And really, here's what's funny. She cut school. She walks out after giving some lip, some really unnecessary lip to Grace. I feel bad for Grace. Grace has been nothing but sweet, kind of like a sheep, really dumb. But how can you hate something so dumb? (laughs) And so when Jeannie is really snotty to her, I feel bad for her. But Jeannie cuts school and she doesn't get caught any more than Ferris does. No, she does. Her mom says she, she left school. She got a ticket. She made a phony phone call to the police. Well, she only gets caught after she gets arrested. But, I mean, she cut school and went home and was perfectly fine. If there hadn't been a home invasion, then she would have gotten all away with it. Yeah, and she could have just left school and done whatever she wanted to do. Go to the mall and hang out or whatever. But nope, she made it her plan and her motive to go get Ferris. Or at least get home and bust him. Yeah, and the mom had come home and found the him sleeping in bed with that dummy setup, but when Jeannie gets home and kicks the door open, that's ruined. But here's where Ed Rooney becomes a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, I, maybe this is just a movie about a serial stalker. He's going to break and enter. He's going to trespass. He's going to damage property. He heard a dog. There's an empty street. He's going to park in front of the hydrant. <laughs> I have to give, I don't know if it was John Hughes or the cinematographer or the director of photography, major credit for the way they set up the shot where Rooney is coming in through the dog door. (laughs) Because as an adult, I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, first of all, that's a really big dog door. (laughs) And they have an equally big dog. (laughs) And second of all, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you don't have to crawl through that. Just, you know, put your arm in and open the door from the inside. But they blocked the shot just perfectly so there was a chair sitting in front of the door handle. So you didn't automatically make that connection. Like, it would just be so easy to reach in and open the door. (laughs) So I have to give kudos to whoever thought that through. And we really do see a physical and emotional degradation of Rooney here. Like, the more beat up he gets, the more body parts and the more his clothes rip and his shoe falls off, the more also he becomes a powerless figure. Initially, he started off... Like the Dark Overlord, like he would be out to get Ferris. But by the time Jeannie's kicking him in the face, you realize he has absolutely no competency whatsoever. (laughs) What a beautiful ride it was, though. Like his descendants into incompetency 
was so well orchestrated. Like when we first see him, he's concerned, he's concerned with a little speck of something on his desk and his <laughs> pencils have to be just so, you know, he's almost OCD. And by the end of this, he, like you said, he's, he's stepping in mud, his bottom of his pants are frayed, his, the ass is ripped out of his slacks. He is just a mess, and it's it's a beautiful slide into that. I also wasn't aware what a scorching case of herpes was until I saw this in my 20s and went, oh. I wasn't <laughs> sure what herpes was, I'll be honest. I just knew they were bad. Like I think the first time I heard about herpes was space herpes and yes! ice pirates. Yes! <laughs> and I thought it was one of those little wormy things that slugged off. But <laughs> Yes. And I knew Eddie Murphy had a joke, like, herpes yeah, stays with you forever like luggage. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, airlines were kinder to luggage in the 80s. (laughs) But while Rudy's going down, Ferris and the gang go up. They go to the Sears Tower, lean on the glass, go to the museum, go to the baseball game. Don't forget the stock exchange. Stock exchange. They have lunch. How in the world did they pull all of this stuff off in between the hours of, let's be be generous and say 8.30 a.m.? And what time do you think Ferris finally got home? Five? Five thirty? It's five till six when he decides he has to race home. So six o'clock ish. There's just no way they pulled all this stuff off. Back and forth to Cameron's house a few times. Mm, they stay in their suburb. They only go in and out of the city once. I was wondering how they got around. They park the car in a parking garage. We never see them take the L. But they probably take a taxi, although still with Chicago traffic, you ain't getting anywhere quick. Oh, they do take a taxi at one point because his yeah. dad is right next to him. And he does something to Sloane that makes her <laughs> laugh incredibly that I just imagine what that might be. He tickled her. They showed it. <laughs> they you showed it tickling her? Yeah, he was grabbing her legs and tickling her behind the knees. I, I do not remember seeing that. I've all these times I watched it. I always... Yeah, because they're on the floor. Uh-huh. Yeah, he grabs her legs and tickles behind her knees. Yeah, and, she said, and he says, what's he doing? She's like, licking the glass and making obscene gestures. Yeah, I just never <laughs> saw him tickle her knees. <laughs> Why didn't his dad know his girlfriend? I think it was just one of those things where he looked real quick, and then by the time he looked back, she was, you know, got her sunglasses on. and It's because the dad's doing coke. <laughs> <laughs> is that part of the Ferris is just a figment of Cameron's imagination theory? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you going to make it one? I just, yeah, I've always had a little bit of a problem with how they, okay, even if they only went to a couple innings of that baseball game, a baseball game is three, four hours. Yeah, they actually, in the novelization, said they didn't stay for the whole game. After Ferris caught the foul ball, he had a couple people dangle him over the dugout because Sloan wanted it signed, so he got it signed, and then... They left the game early. They didn't want to wait for the game to be over and have it signed after the fact. And then a parade. That's going to cause traffic issues. Yes. <laughs> Participating in a parade. That's going to take a little bit of time out of your day. They even cut stuff out of this because from the baseball thing, he was supposed to go on a radio show where he was being interviewed and he talked about how he was going to be the first teenager in space. They cut that after the Challenger. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, the town even had time to get up on the water tower and paint Save Ferris up there. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder how they had time to get the word around about that. I wondered how by mid-afternoon there's a newspaper headline, community rallies around sick youth. But Marjorie and I have often discussed playing hooky and going to Chicago. 
Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to go to the Mercantile Exchange anymore after 9-11. So no. we have to strike that off. And I don't think that Shea Key is a real restaurant. But I'm sure we could find a French restaurant there. Although I doubt if they'd let us in if I was wearing a Detroit Red Wings jersey. Probably. <laughs> as long as it's Gordie Howe, you'll be all right. Did you guys hear that, though? Say the restaurant out loud. Shaky. Yeah, I just heard that for the first time. Shakey's. Yeah, it's Shakey's. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I think if you went to one inning of a baseball game, you just decide to stay for like one inning, and the museum, Marjorie and I are pretty experts at getting through a museum in one to two hours. That's being generous. And the top of the Sears Tower, I've done that several times. That's a 20-minute expedition. If you could travel to these places, because they are not across the street from each other, then you would be able, I think, to do the things they do. It feels like they do a lot more than they actually do because it's spread out over the movie. But it is really four stops plus a parade. And things in between. I mean, there's, you know, after Cameron goes catatonic, they stop at the lakefront and they're hanging out there for a little bit, have a conversation. They end up at a, I assume it's Sloan's house or somebody's house that has a pool and a hot tub. I thought it was Cameron's. Yeah, I thought it was Cameron's house. I just always assumed because they would take the car back there, but maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. It felt like a different neighborhood than Cameron's, to be sure. And And Sloan does have a bathing suit she had to get from somewhere. Yeah. Maybe they just busted into somebody's backyard and hung out for all we know. <laughs> but, I mean, there's some time there. They're chilling. You know, they're in the hot tub and Cameron's sitting on that diving board for who knows how long before he decides to hit the bottom. I'm not saying you wouldn't have to be regimented with your time. But I think about when we've gone to cities and we've only had a couple of days. We went to Madrid. We went to London. We went to Paris. Well, we just did D.C. in one day. Yeah, we you block out your time and you say, okay, we're going here, we're spending this long, we're going here, we're spending this long. Are you going to see every piece of art in the Art Institute of Chicago? No, but are you going to have enough time to absorb some of them and still keep going on with a fabulous day off? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess all I'm saying is it takes a little bit of suspension of reality just to go <laughs> along with this. And it's not really something you need to overthink about, but it would be it would be kind of fun just to see if it could be done and still have a good time while doing it instead of it feeling like a chore that you're trying to get through. Well, Marjorie and I are probably going to try this someday. You want to come along and be our Cameron? Sure, I'll be your Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'll get to sing in a parade. <laughs> well, we'll at least find the area and you can get in the middle of the street or on the sidewalk and you can belt out Don Quixote for a while. <laughs> I do love the parade scene. I love all the dancing going on, the choreographed people on the stairs. The one guy doing the breakdancing move that nowadays I look at him and I only think of him as like a human paint mixer. <laughs> <laughs> I always heard a rumor as a kid that those were the same dancers that were Michael Jackson's thriller. And I couldn't find anything to back that up. It's only that they're doing a very similar dance to that. Yeah, I noticed a couple of hand moves that felt very thriller and the way they stomped was very thriller. I don't think those are the exact same dancers. Nothing I... Heard in the commentary, nothing I read said they were the same, but the dance is very similar. 
What I did find interesting is a lot of the people in this parade scene didn't even know they were in the movie because they did this over two weeks. One weekend, there really was a parade that they put a float in. But then another weekend, they came out and said, who wants to be in a John Hughes movie? And like 10,000 people showed up and mobbed the place. And they were playing Twist and Shout really loud. And like the window washer and some of the other people heard the music so far away, they were just grooving to the music. And John Hughes told the cameraman, hey, break out the telephoto, film that guy. (laughs) That's great. I mean, it does feel like an actual parade going on. Like it doesn't feel overly staged like you would think a movie like this would make it feel. But when I saw this at 11, I really thought Ferris was singing. I thought he was singing these songs. Then I thought he was lip syncing Danke Shane, and that's when he got on the float. I don't know why I thought a German parade with an accordion would be playing Danke Shane, but I went with that. But then I still thought he was the vocalist for Twist and Shout. Watching it this time on the home theater, I'm like, wow. That lip syncing is so bad. He has no emotion in his face whatsoever (laughs) that would go along with belting out a song. It's obvious he's just going through the motions. (laughs) But it it almost plays off as too cool to overact. You know, it still plays for me. Like if I was to do something like that, I wouldn't be all overly emotional. I would try to be too cool for the room, but I'm still entertaining you folks. And I think that kind of works to that degree. What is a little bit disturbing to me is that you thought that that sounded like that could be Matthew Broderick's voice. It's disturbing to me to find out that that's actually Wayne Newton singing that song and not some woman. When he was 13. He was 13 when he recorded that? Yeah, he was okay. a little kid. That makes more sense then. Yeah. I, was like, I don't remember Wayne Newton sounding like such a, a woman. Yeah, he was a little boy. <laughs> He was actually a really popular singer when he was a little boy, too. He was the Michael Jackson of the 50s. hmm <laughs> But it's after this, they get the car back from those attendants. And another Howard the Duck link, Richard Edson is the main gas station attendant. And he was also one of the greasy guys who was friends with Cherry Bomb's manager in Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he was having a big year. He'd actually go on to be in big parts. He was a pretty major part of Do the Right Thing, and he has a whole bunch of credits now. But they get the car back, and yes, they took it out joyriding. I imagine that scene actually inspired a lot of teenage valets to take really nice cars for crazy joyrides. <laughs> yep, and that's where we get some of the awesome scenes that feel like cutscenes as you're watching it as an adult, you know, them jumping the car to the Star Wars theme, which turns out not to actually be the Star Wars theme. Well, it is. It was just, if you listen to that musical episode, it was re-performed, but that was a great scene because the car leaps like the Star Destroyer in the opening of the movie. But here's where Cameron goes catatonic. You get the great shout that echoes across the city, and you get these great city shots, helicopter shots there. But then Cameron just sits there basically having a panic attack. And later on, they say he was faking. I don't know how much of it he was faking, when he was faking. Well, was he faking or did he just admit that he was figuring things out? How did they even get him out of the car to the brick wall by the lake and then into that chair precariously balanced on the diving board? (laughs) He doesn't look like he'd be too much assistance in walking. Perhaps it's 
he's a little bit more with it than we think he is. Yeah, I can't imagine the two of them, like, actually deadlifting him and putting him in these positions. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like helping a drunk friend home, you know? Like, come on, let's wrangle you over this way. And popped him on the diving board for whatever reason. I'm not quite sure what the thought was there. This is Cameron's lowest moment, but... I mean, on one hand, yes, Ferris caused this by forcing the car out, although Cameron does say he could have stopped Ferris if he really wanted to, and I believe him. But on the other hand, Ferris and Sloane are really good friends to... Well, are they? I mean, they're sitting in a hot tub eating Oreos while he's sitting there, but (laughs) by the same token, they're very tender and caring to him. Well, I would think that if my friend was in the situation where he's likely to get the crap beat out of him, I would probably do more than sit in a hot tub and eat Oreos. I don't know how I'd react. If at that age, I might have been like, all right, well, let's just get him home and hope his mom doesn't call us. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, all you can do is either keep an eye on him or get him someplace safe. And I just, I guess sitting him on a diving board just wouldn't occur to me to do. But I think they needed a, a precarious situation that would snap him out of it and allow Ferris to prove his friendship once and for all to Cameron. By not letting him drown? That's proving the friendship. <laughs> I think proving the friendship is later on when he offers to take the heat for the destruction of the $10 million Ferrari. Sure, that's part of it. But I, you don't see Ferris saving Cameron like that as... I guess the way it's shot is Ferris doesn't even think twice. Like, he dives into action, literally, to save his friend. And to somebody... In the mindset of somebody like Cameron, who feels like maybe he's worth nothing and nobody really cares about him, that's a big statement and a big gesture for somebody to make for them. Maybe. I would think if I saw a stranger sitting at the bottom of the pool, I would not hesitate. I would dive in and try to get them out and see if they were okay. But the fact that Cameron was faking the drowning, I mean, that is what he faked. That was just to get Ferris back a little bit. I mean, you see Ferris is actually angry at that moment. It's one of the few times somebody puts one over on him. <laughs> yep. And then it gets a little creepy because he apparently watched Sloane change. And she's okay with it. Yeah. All right. This is why, again, I thought she was European. <laughs> And speaking about creepy, it's at this point that Jeannie's making out with a drug dealer at the police station, Charlie Sheen. I had seen Charlie Sheen in stuff by this point, but I never knew this was him. Even afterwards, I became a bit of a Charlie Sheen fan and never went back and reconciled this was him in this nameless role who we now... Now it's best to leave him nameless. (laughs) We now know he's Garth Volbeck. The inspiration for Ferris to help Cameron. He's here giving Jeannie some advice. And Sheen went method. If he looks tired in that scene, he went 48 hours without sleep so he could play a strung out (laughs) drug addict. (laughs) And I think now he'd probably admit that he probably had some help staying up for 48 hours. (laughs) Like, I think he really went method. Nah, he was just using the tiger's blood and winning. (laughs) But I think this is probably my my introduction to Charlie Sheen. Because I remember seeing stuff like Hot Shots and stuff like that and be like, oh, wait, that's the guy that was on the couch in Ferris Bueller. Because I don't know what I would have seen him into this previous to that. I know he was in Red Dawn, but I didn't see that until I was older. And he was such a minor part of Red Dawn. He wasn't, you know, like Patrick Swayze. You're right. I thought I'd seen him in something before this. I hadn't. Later that same year, I would see him when I go to see The Wraith in theaters. 
and I'd see him in a lot of stuff after, but this is the first thing I'd seen him in. I didn't see Lucas until the 90s. Oh, yeah, Lucas is where I'd probably see him next. I didn't see Lucas in theaters, but that became the type of thing that we'd watch on VHS quite a bit. I saw Lucas in theaters. And I didn't see Red Dawn until the 21st century, but... I fixed that. But he was in both of those, so that's why this would be somewhat of a cameo. But he does give that good advice like you mentioned, Justin, and he has a good bad boy look here, breaks Jeannie out. I was never quite sure why she called herself Shauna. I had to I finally got that answered in the commentary, but that always weirded me out. Okay, what's the answer? It's that she's so insecure, she doesn't like a lot about herself. That's why she's after Ferris. And she doesn't even like her own name, so she tries to make up a name here so that she likes better than Jeannie, but he doesn't fall for it. He calls her Jeannie anyway. It's probably as a result of Jeannie that I also used a fake name in high school. (laughs) Did you have a nice underscored song that punctuated that? That's one of the best gags in this movie. (laughs) So here is where I feel like Jeannie's arc is resolved. Cameron's arc is resolved. When the car flies out the window. Agreed. Well, it flies out the window and it's resolved with his speech about how he's going to stand up to his father. Now, again, when I walked out of the theater with my sister in 86, she was pissed. She's like, what happened to Cameron? Why did we not see this? What kind of movie doesn't show us him confronting his parents at the end? Does he get beaten up? What happens? (laughs) She and I had the same parents, so we may have had similar fears for Cameron's safety. <laughs> so you guys were looking at this as more of like a instructional film than just a, <laughs> a comedy. <laughs> I always figured that Cameron got in a ton of trouble after this and that I guess I always thought because I was afraid of my father if I did something like this, that I would literally suffer the wrath of a million gods. And I always kind of figured that Cameron was like going to get the crap kicked out of him. Watching this as an adult, I definitely see the look in Ruck's face. Ruck is, you can't oversell him as an actor in this. He, his performance tells me that Cameron is going to be just fine. Yeah, that was no BS. He does sell it and I believe it and I feel fine leaving it right there. I don't need to find out what his dad says or does. It's not going to be easy, but I think he is taking his stand. He says it will define his relationship with his father for the rest of his life. Clearly, I think this will. This will be his first rebellion of any sort. And my God, to smash an $11 million automobile, that's one (laughs) hell of a rebellion. (laughs) And then Ferris drops Sloan off at home. And okay, again. (laughs) Yawn. (laughs) I'll call you later. Her last line is, he's going to marry me. And... Is that her arc, is realizing, hey, this is real and we're going to be married? I guess. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We're not sure why she's here. Like, the only thing that I can really think of is is they needed a third character for these two to play off of. And instead of making it a total sausage party, why not have a female in there? And so there's really no way to to resolve her character other than just kind of drop her off the same way they picked her up, which was (laughs) just for the heck of it. And let's get on to the end of the movie is kind of what they're saying here. But I think she was there to show that Ferris is a good guy and does have a softer side, and he's just not the jerk that Jeannie makes him out to be. Were either of you, though, a little perplexed? I even thought this in 86. Next, we get Ferris's great run home, and I love this scene. Just gag after gag. I still laugh at the running through the house. Oh, smells wonderful. Dinner's ready. But (laughs) 
he runs past the two sunbathing women. <laughs> and first of all, they're sunbathing in spring in the shade at six o'clock at night. <laughs> well, totally. But then he turns around to introduce himself. Isn't that a little bit like iffy? Hey, hot, almost naked girls. I'm Ferris. Oh, wait, I have a girlfriend, but I'm still. <laughs> hey, you, you got to just be out there. You know, you got to be open to all possibilities. <laughs> but if you're going to be married to Sloan, what possibilities are you out there to? Open marriage? Well, this just this just shows, like, I don't know how serious the whole marriage thing is and how serious we should take it. After all, these are 18-year-olds. You know, they're getting ready to go to college. I don't think marriage is a theme in this movie at all. It's just something they throw out there to demonstrate that this is more than just puppy love. These kids actually love each other in about as deep as way as you can as a teenager. And I don't think there's much more to it than that. True. I may take the dialogue a little literally, but we'll discuss it. I have trouble envisioning Ferris post-graduation anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeannie is racing him home. And I find that when I'm watching this again, now playing, her character arc was resolved with Garth. So now she's racing home still to bust Ferris it's like she then has an epiphany later, but right now, she still has a hard-on to bust him. Yeah, that plays a little weird. It's like, it's not until she goes racing home, cops are after her again, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gets another ticket, you know, almost kills her mom, they almost get in a wreck. She gets home and she's ready to bust him, and then for whatever reason, maybe it hits her then, like, with the, op the opportunity to either save Ferris or let him burn, I think she decided, well, maybe what Garth said makes sense, and she gets to be the bigger person there. See, I always thought she forgave Ferris because she got home and realized that she could bust Rooney, and that was the bigger fish to fry. Maybe. It does just play a little weird. I like that she kind of just hangs him out there and lets him, like, his feet dangle over the fire a little bit, before she steps in to rescue him, though. It's a little bit of a power play. Her kind of coming into her own, maybe, saying, I'm not going to be the sister you've walked over low these 17 years. <laughs> and it could also just be to resolve a running gag that has been going on through this entire movie. If you've noticed, there's never a scene where Ferris and Rooney talk to each other. There's always Ferris saying what he needs to say to Rooney, and Rooney doesn't say anything. Or vice versa. From the phone call, to this shot, to the recorded thing before. They, they never have a back and forth in person. And right as Ferris is about to speak, she opens the door and speaks for him. True. And one thing Hughes pointed out in the commentary here is when Ferris runs up to the room and he's turning off the equalizer and diving into bed... They're playing the music, and he instructed it to be like the diffusing of a bomb in an action film. And Hughes even said, but what's going to happen if his parents find him? Nothing. You know, there's no stakes. And I think that's great of Hughes as a filmmaker to create these stakes because when you're in high school, when you're skipping or doing anything you're afraid of getting in trouble for, it does feel like you're defusing the bomb if you get close to getting caught. And in the end... It's just silly shit. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenario, he'd be grounded, but that's not our concern. The movie's almost over, so... <laughs> he had his day. Exactly. Even if he gets grounded for the weekend, we don't care. We're going home. <laughs> and then the credits. I could not recall 
when I saw this in theaters, ever seeing a movie that ran with the credits like this. I had seen some before, but you know what? It was never a continuation of the movie. It was usually like a gag reel or a blooper reel. Some Burt Reynolds movies would do this. Cannonball Run and Smoking the Bandit would have, you know, bloopers and mess-ups playing on the side of the credits. But I'd never seen it continuing with the movie after the ending. I also think this might have been the first end credit scene, although it didn't set up, you know, Tony Stark coming. But, I mean, just to give you an example, my stepbrother had seen this movie a whole bunch of times and finally watched all the way through, didn't even realize there's an end credit scene. I know a lot of people who said that. I actually did some research to see if this was the first, or at least in the modern age. Apparently, in 1903, the Great Train Robbery had a stinger at the end. Oh, damn it, I forgot that one. <laughs> but in the modern day, it was comedy films. The first modern example was one I probably saw, but never saw this scene of, the Muppet movie in 79. Huh. It ended with a gag there, and Airplane, which I didn't see until much later, and other comedy films would have something at the very end, usually a callback to something or other. So it was something done with comedy films, but they didn't necessarily run something throughout the entire credits. They just have credits of that a little gag at the end. Yeah, this one's not truly an after-credit Easter egg, because you're sitting there watching what's going on with Rooney on the bus anyway. And then by the time that fades out, you know, you might get up from your seat and start to leave, and then that scene's right there. So even if you stayed through the Rooney th scene, most people in the theater are still going to see this final scene with Ferris. And it probably is the first instance ever of a movie character telling the audience to go home. <laughs> <laughs> but do we go home with a smile? Justin, Marjorie, do you recommend Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Justin. I think it's pretty obvious that I've been really positive about this movie throughout this review. This has always been a movie that I've loved. It's been with me since I was 12 years old, and I watched it a ton through my teenage years. Maybe let it go a little bit through my 20s and 30s, but, you know, sitting back down to watch this movie again, I was a little afraid that it wasn't going to hold up. I was afraid that I might be diving into some nostalgia that I was about to ruin for myself. But thankfully... I think it does hold up, at least in my memory. It doesn't come off cheesy. It doesn't come off overly done. I didn't look at Ferris as a petulant teenager now that I'm an older guy with kids of my own. I still had fun with this movie the same way I did when I was a kid. It kind of took me back to that place. And, you know, it doesn't even look that dated. For a movie that was made in 1985, 86, watching this, it doesn't feel like, oh, look, look at all these cars from the mid-80s, and look at all these things from 1986. Like, there's a few things that you can kind of place it in the mid-80s, but for the most part, it feels somewhat, I don't want to say timeless, because it is of this millennium. But at the end of the day, I was happy to take another day off with Ferris Bueller. So, yes, this is a big green era for me. Marjorie. I'm not too big on the movies that are supposed to be considered quote-unquote classic, but I do think for our generation and maybe the generation behind us, this is a classic movie. I don't know that kids today get it, if it's something that's like flying over the head of them, but I like it. It holds up today. I mean, you and I, 30-some years later, are still planning one of these days to take one of our Ferris Bueller Day Off 
hooky days from work and going up and trying to fit as much Ferris stuff in as we can. So I think this movie should be viewed by everyone. It's fun. I think we could all empathize with Ferris not wanting to go to school. And I think, you know, we've all been there and Arnie used to keep a little thermometer by his cereal bowl so he wouldn't have to go. But yeah, I I recommend this movie. I think it's good. No matter what age you are, I think you'll find it amusing and funny. And some of it is really great. And I think that everybody can enjoy the spirit of the movie. I'll agree. I liked Ferris when I was 11, but I wrote it off as a fun, cool comedy, you know, just enjoyed living vicariously through Ferris. Watching it as an adult, though, I think this is Hugh's best film. And that's really a bold statement when you're looking at The Breakfast Club and you're looking at him writing Pretty in Pink and all of that. But this one, I think, has all of the emotional resonance and the insight into high school that he brought the year before at The Breakfast Club. Looking at Cameron and his parents, looking at Ferris and his parents and the relationships of friends and school administrators there, I think this movie has a hell of a lot of heart. I think Hughes is somebody who, despite being middle-aged at this point, really could still connect with his high school self and remember what it was like to be a high schooler and bring that experience to the screen time and time again. And this is probably the pinnacle of it. It's not as dramatic at any moment as Breakfast Club, but it keeps the smaller core of characters and really puts them through a day that I think is, as you said, Justin, as relatable today as it was then. I really do think that While, like Marjorie said, younger audiences may not be introduced to this because it's not a new movie, it's an oldie that's on TV, it's 30 years old, but if they watch it, I think they'll find something to relate in, and as you age, this movie matures with you, and you can see it its own way. So yeah, I give this a really strong recommend. Well, I guess nobody's going to leave your cheese in the wind. But, Ferris did continue. First of all... I didn't know this until I was researching this movie. I felt actually very, very cheated by what I'm going to tell you. (laughs) But I read that Ferris Bueller appeared in She's Having a Baby, which was John Hughes' next film. Have either of you seen it? No. I have. I don't remember much of it. I felt like it was one of those things where we went to the mall and wanted to see a movie and that happened to be what was playing. I saw it when it came out because I was a fan of Kevin Bacon and it looked like a funny comedy. It was a little let down. I was really let down when I watched it for Ferris Bueller's appearance, which is actually just some clips of Matthew Broderick taken out of this film. They do have the parents from this film. It's at the end credits. There's a lot of celebrity cameos in the end credits. John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, Ted Danson, Woody Harrelson, the parents from this movie, and... Yeah, it looks like they just had some extra footage of Matthew Broderick in his bathrobe that they used there. So I was I was really let down by that. Really? Wait, really? That he was excited and watched the movie because of that? <laughs> no, no, that they did that. <laughs> like, did they insert it into the actual plot of the movie? Because I don't remember this at all. No, during the end credits, they've had the baby, right? The movie, She's Having a Baby, the climax, She Has the Baby. The end credits, She Has Had the Baby, and they're trying to decide what to name it. And they go to all of these people who give naming suggestions, right? Oh, so it might not necessarily have been leftover footage. It might have been 
at least a forethought in the mind of John Hughes to be like, oh, while we have this Ferris character and we're shooting this, hey, just say this line real quick. Well, here's why I think it's not that. (laughs) Oh, boy. He's in the bathrobe on the set. So it was filmed during the filming of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They have the parents there and they say Ferris and they're not on set or anything. So you think that is something where he got those people together again or something and had them say that. And then they cut to the scene of Ferris from the very end where he looks around the corner. So it's like he went, did someone say my name? But it's the scene where he's like, you're still here. Oh, so he doesn't even have a speaking part in this. Later, they cut back to him and he just looks at the camera and says, Jim. But was he talking about someone named Jim that they just cut that out of? It's not like he exclaims, Jim! He just goes, Jim. <laughs> like he was talking to the boom operator yeah, off camera. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so I really think they had some footage where he said, Jim, and they just put it in. Wow. Yet that's still better. <laughs> Did either of you watch the Ferris Bueller TV series? No. Absolutely not. I watched Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and that was as close to something like that I wanted to get. They started the same year, you know. Right, and I went with Parker. Parker was always (laughs) called a Ferris ripoff. And you mentioned Zach Morris, and Zach Morris was a Ferris ripoff, and Parker and the Ferris series kind of built on that. I remember that Monday night in 1990, fall, I was so excited for NBC's lineup because they were going to have a Ferris Bueller TV series and a Fresh Prince TV series, one right after the other. I watched the Fresh Prince series and I was actually a little disappointed. No DJ Jazzy Jeff, so I didn't get to that. Ferris Bueller TV series. Now perhaps most famous because Jennifer Aniston inherited the role of Genie. Oh, wow. But... It started with Ferris coming out, this new actor, next to a cardboard standee of Matthew Broderick as Ferris, saying, you think you know Ferris Bueller, you don't, this is all movie nonsense, I'm going to show you the real Ferris Bueller. He grabs a chainsaw, cuts the cardboard Ferris Bueller in half, and that was enough. I turned it off. I did not even go back. I intentionally did not watch an episode for this. I will not watch an episode. They completely disrespected the movie. Uh, how long did that show run? It couldn't have gone on for too long because I have no memory of that show whatsoever. Except for I guess I remember seeing commercials and knowing well enough that if it wasn't the original people, then I wasn't going to bother with it. It made it half a season. It was canceled in December and it had premiered in August. So... <laughs> They did 13 episodes. I guess they had one episode in the can because per wiki, the final episode aired in August of 91 in one of those, hey, we have to fill a night that nobody's watching TV things. Yeah, just kind of throw it out there and be done with it. I'll agree. I watched Parker Lewis Can't Lose and I really enjoyed that season and I felt that was a better heir to the Ferris Bueller legacy than the Ferris Bueller TV series. Yeah, it gave us some... Some memorable characters all of its own without necessarily being a complete ripoff of Ferris Bueller. It was done in the same style as Ferris, but it's not a complete one-for-one ripoff. Yeah, I mean, he even broke the fourth wall. To this day, I still say not a problem a lot. And then every so often I hear in my head from one of the episodes, What's the problem, Mr. Not a Problem? But that wraps up this episode. Now, if you want to hear more 1986 reviews, Stuart, Jacob, and I are going absolutely nuts with 86 horror. 
there's some comedy in there. April Fool's Day, Vamp, they could definitely be considered comedies. House has a lot of comedy in it. And then Deadly Friend has a lot of unintentional comedy in it. And we are giving away a Deadly Friend DVD signed by star Christy Swanson. You can find all the details about that either by going to the Venganza Media Gazette, going to our forums, or listening to that show. So you can check that out and support Now Playing. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, find out all the details. And Justin, Marjorie, thanks for joining me. And maybe sometime we'll get back together and look at another John Hughes film. God knows there's some good ones out there. Maybe not She's Having a Baby or Curly (laughs) Sue, but I might enjoy a Breakfast Club or Weird Science review at some point. I would be down for that. Those You're singing my tune. Those are the movies of my childhood. I just like to make the credits with the Oingo Boingo song. So once again, listeners, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening. And until next time, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. All this talking has made me kind of lightheaded. I think I ought to lie down. Take a hot bath and then uh, wrap a hot towel around your head. Wrap a hot towel around my head? And then, make yourself some soup. Get a nap. Okay? Okay. Hey, Ferris? Yeah. Love you, pal. I love you, too. Thank you for listening to this bonus movie review from Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. (laughs) Yeah, man, we're going to do this again. Now Playing is a podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep reviewing movies week after week. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. Until December 31st, 2016, if you donate to Now Playing, you can get bonus movie reviews. I'm sorry. I mean, I know you don't care, but it does mean my ass. Hear reviews from all films in the Fly series, the Reanimator series, plus reviews of eight horror classics from 1986. The Hitcher, House, Shopping Mall, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, and From Beyond. It is so choice. If you have the means, I highly recommend picking one up. Find details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Pardon my French, but he's so tight that if you stuck a lump of coal up his ass, in two weeks you'd have a diamond. Now Playing's Ferris Bueller's Day Off review is edited by Arnie. I asked for a car, I got a computer. How's that for being born under a bad sign? Now playing credit narration by Brock. You speak English? Uh, what country do you think this is? Now playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures or any of the makers or copyright holders of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The movie reviewed in this podcast and the music and audio clips used are the intellectual property of their original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm going to get busted, it is not going to be by a guy like that. 
The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Yeah, right. Dry that one out, you can fertilize the lawn. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. It makes me dream to this day of someday doing that in our house, turning all the screws exactly vertical. <laughs> you go for it. But I thought Project X was a movie about a party. That's a recent Project X. I'm talking about the 1980s Project X with Helen Hunt and Matthew Broderick, all about mean experimentation on monkeys and killing them. Horrifying. That movie made me cry. Oh. Yeah, I I don't don't think I ever saw that one. Yeah, I don't like animal violence. It's very sad because monkeys have that very emotive face, and you know they're gonna die, and it's just it's horrible. (laughs) My. You know, my mother sent me to school with chicken pox because I so hoped for a disease that when I actually had one, she did not believe me. And then she was so pissed when the school nurse called and said, come get your son. She thought I was for sure faking and she was ready to just rip me a (laughs) new one. And then she saw me with these red welts all over my body and felt a little chagrined. Were you patient zero at your school? (laughs) No, this was high school. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I got it late. Yeah, usually kids, you know, some folks are like, well, kid down the street has chicken pox. Why don't you go down there and play with him so we can get this over with all at once? My mom had done that. Everybody just thought I was immune. Oh, weird. Well, you got to watch out for shingles in, in your older years then, Arnie. Yep, we're getting there. That That's the sequel. <laughs> Ferris Bueller gets shingles. <laughs> you know, growing up, uh, I think I always wanted to be a Ferris, but I think I might have been in Cameron. Oh, you are. Absolutely. I kind of had strict parents, and I was often the third wheel with my friend and his girlfriend. Aw. Were there things in your house that you couldn't touch? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. There's still things in his parents' house you can't touch. Aw, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a museum. Decorative soaps, hand towels that you can't use. I once broke my father's chess piece, and I imagine my father's reaction for a chess piece was similar to what Cameron had to face with the car. Did you take a stand? Did you become a man that day? I was four. Oh. <laughs> I think the reason I ended up watching that Valerie's family TV show is because she was on it, and I had positive memories from this. There's a rabbit hole we can go down. Valerie's family became Valerie. Mm-hmm. No, Valerie became Valerie's family, became the Hogan family. The Hogan became family. Became the Hogans. <laughs> Jason Bateman was on there somewhere, right? During his alcoholic phase. And- he was an but alcoholic? He- yeah. I didn't know oh, that. Yeah. Really? He had a bad mid to late 80s. I did not know that. Oh, 
Well, I went downhill after Meatballs 2. I've never seen the Meatballs series. <laughs> it should never see two. <laughs> I've lived this long without seeing one. I've only seen four because it has Corey Feldman. Oh, there's for a Meatballs sake. four. <laughs> <laughs> I smell. Is that a- the one with the alien? That's three <laughs> with the alien, right? I smell a Meatballs series. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, you smell Meatballs. I call not dibs. <laughs> I also was not aware what a scorching cape of herpes was. A scorching what? cape of herpes? What's a cape of herpes? Is it surrounding you? <laughs> it's like a beach full of herpes. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you have herpes? On my cape. I may have been the camera a lot of times, but no girlfriends changed in front of me. So, And none were as hot as Mia Sarah. Marjorie is sitting right there. Yeah, but I'm talking high school. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We went to different schools, you see. We did. But our best friends dated each other, and we didn't know each other. And neither were as hot as Mia Sarah. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I had a friend in high school who, her real name was Shauna, but she went by the name Styles. From uh, Teen Wolf? I always thought so. <laughs> I think so. Does she have red jeans? No, but she thought she was a vampire. Oh, Jesus. Wowzers. She she was dating a friend of mine. <laughs> was his name Ferris Bueller? No, Aaron Lepley. 